and welcome to Science Shambles producer Trent here. This episode is a recording of the live Q&A show we do each and every Sunday, well pretty much each and every Sunday. That is live and free on our YouTube channel so you can go to youtube.com slash cosmic shambles to see who's coming up each week and watch live and ask questions live as well. If you've got any questions uh, for our guests each week, you can email them to us as well at contact at cosmicshambles.com and we will put them to our panel. And since this is a recording from the live show, bear in mind, if there's a couple of little sound blips or anything like that here and there, that is because, well, we do do it live over Zoom and Skype and stuff. So you know how uh, finicky those things can be at times. And also, since it's live on YouTube, uh, some elements might be slightly more visual than uh, we would normally have for a podcast. So keep that in mind while you're listening. If you'd like to support the Cosmic Shambles Network, you can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and subscribe and you get lots of extra stuff as well as a warm glow for supporting all the stuff we do at Cosmic Shambles. The Tips for Existence series is exclusive to Patreon supporters where Robin chats about meaning in a meaningless universe with lots of different entertainers and scientists like Tim Minchin and Brian Green and Katie Brand and Neil Gaiman. Nicole Stott, Andrean, and lots, lots more. And also there's the Uncanny Hour documentary series. That's exclusive to Patreon, where we look at some of the weird and wonderful bits of counterculture, like UFOs and the films of John Carpenter and Paul Jennings and Silent Running and all that sort of stuff. That is hosted by Robin with lots of special guests on that, like Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and pretty much everyone from the League of Gentlemen, Mark Kermode, Linda Marrick, Jenny Roan, Helen Chersky, Samira Ahmed and lots more as well. Patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. You can also go and rate and review the podcast five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That helps us out. Check out everything else at CosmicShambles.com. And now on to this week's Q&A show, I hand you over to your hosts, Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Good morning. Welcome back to Sunday Science Q&A. We've been away, I think, for about two weeks, but hopefully some of you saw uh, the show that we did from Cheltenham Science Festival last Saturday night, uh, which was a lot of fun. And uh, well, we could talk about Cheltenham Science Festival shortly. Maybe we'll talk with Helen uh, about what happens when you uh, gather together for a science festival and uh, the spreadsheets involved. Uh, a couple of things. To qu- oh, by the way, just so you know, today we're going to be talking uh, about uh, psychology. We're going to be talking about the nature of the human mind. We're going to be talking uh, about video games, what we we actually understand about video games all of those kind of things that come up in the in the press saying oh well video games will destroy you i mean video games are kind of a little bit like chocolate and red wine there's you know a long period of time where they tell you're going to kill you and then there'll be one that says actually they're really really good for you so that's kind of what they are now um but we'll be talking about that and john ottaway we will try and get to your question about whether uh, it will actually make you better playing computer games because you are desperate for an alibi at the moment so we'll mm-hmm. be dealing with that uh also to mention if you can support us for our Patreon, that's fantastic. Uh, we did have a couple of weeks where we haven't been putting out as much stuff. Uh, that was just a, a, an aberration because some other parts of life got in the way of us being able to make things. Uh, but we're back with uh, this week. There was new tips for existence with Katie Brand, and next week we've got one with Anil Seth, who's a fantastic neuroscientist. You might have heard on the Infinite Monkey Cage uh, arguing uh, against simulation theory, which was tremendously uh, enjoyable. And uh, so he's next week's tips for existence. Uh, also on the psychology side. 
Dean Burnett is this week's Book Shambles guest, so you can hear that at the moment. And uh, we've got loads more coming out, and we're working on a new series of An Uncanny Hour as well. We'll probably start off with a special on Norman J. Warren, and then we may well be doing something on Paul Jennings. Uh, also, to say, if you've got any questions you want to ask, you can go into the live chat, and Trent will make sure that I get those, or you can just tweet at Cosmic Shambles. So, Helen, I think I covered pretty much everything there, didn't I? That was a bad yeah, you dropped some pretty heavy hints about Cheltenham, so we should probably explain what all of that is about. Because we have been, we are scientists, we believe in doing experiments, and we have been doing an experiment, although none of us uh, signed up to it. So a bunch of us, Cheltenham Science Festival this year was partly, it was a hybrid, partly online, partly in person. There weren't many people actually at Cheltenham, but for those of us who did actually go to Cheltenham, some of us were asked to self-isolate, and the some of us includes Robin and me. So we have been slightly grumpily stuck inside uh, for the past few days, self-isolating. Uh, Robin's been, I've been less grumpy about this from Robin because I actually had some symptoms, no test results yet. So anyway, so we, we've, we've genuinely spent the week, or Tamsin Edwards spent this week uh, assembling spreadsheets trying to look at all the contacts between people and and trying to see how you know how the contact tracing work and where the contacts might have come from so we've had quite an interesting week of something of an experiment none of us wanted to do that's the joy isn't it that if you're all at a science festival and something like this happens then immediately the epidemiologists get their spreadsheets out and things begin but it's interesting because we found out you're the only person as far as we know we've not found anyone who who appears to have covid and you have had one vaccination i think haven't haven't you yeah that's so right the only thing to wonder is if you spread it but you spread it in advance because of naomi wolf's time traveling nanoparticles that she heard spoken about i think in a starbucks in new york so which is either something she overheard from someone who works for apple or as others have suggested perhaps overhearing people talking about the plot of one of the avengers movies hard to tell tell i mean mm. you know i did watch thor ragnarok yes last night um so i'm, I'm well avenged up or whatever that is that not the avengers i love he is he's an avenger and that is a fantastic yeah. film it is an absolute joy i i thought well i thought it was an absolute joy and i'm not a big i'm not one of these kind of marvel people as you know i like grumpy films made in sweden in the 1950s about a melancholy waterfall but I did, uh, I did also watch 12 angry men i've never watched two films in a day before <sighs> Wow, you really are poorly. That is, yeah. that's your whole decade worth of films. Oh, you, we're going to take you to the BFI now, just so you can talk loudly to people about. Oh, that's another a great film to have the Henry Fonda version, I presume. Yes, um, we should do some this week in science because no, 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 no. We're back, and this is uh, this is telling what people say. If you want to watch something with a level of pro well, do you know what? Actually, I think we're very much creating the uh, the sense of Sunday brunch. If you've ever seen that, uh, you know, skating far away from the actual point. Uh, but what has what has happened this week in science apart from you using your time traveling nanoparticles? So particles. That's like. Oh, that's do you like, not know about this? Is the whole thing? Yeah, for sure, calls them particles because no. Manchester, they're particles. I it's didn't know about particles. It's because the um, in Naomi Wolf's uh, tweet, uh, she talks about time traveling nanoparticles, and of course, me immediately presuming my own ignorance went, "Oh God, I haven't read. There's a new thing. It's a nanoparticle, but it doesn't exist. <laughs> if you look up nanoparticle, you will only find, I think, Naomi Wolf's tweet. It's a very sad thing, actually. But there we are. It does very exist? It's a very tiny burger. <laughs> <laughs> So this week in science, very, very quickly, left turn the traffic lights here. Um, back in June uh, 1940, oh, I should know what year the D-Day landings were. That year, anyway, 45, was it? Um, maybe a bit earlier. So the point is that uh, there was a big 
um, planned landing with the Normandy landings uh, on the French coast with boats coming from uh, Britain. And what is interesting about this is not the war aspect of it, which was, you know, planned by uh, General Eisenhower. It's that it used the world's first swell forecast. So what had happened is that... Um, a very famous oceanographer, Walter Monk, who only died last year, actually, or the year before, at 101. He, when he was a young man, um, w had spotted that uh, swell, you know, so waves coming in, um, not breaking waves because of the wind, but smooth swell coming in from the ocean that then broke on the beach, made it really hard for uh, troops to land on beaches. And he was an oceanographer, so he went back to a super his PhD supervisor and said, oh, well, we could study this. We could try to work out whether we can forecast the swell that is coming from a long way away. And in order to do that, what you need to do is look at where the big storms are and calculate how long it will take for the waves to get from those storms all the way to the coast. And so they worked out how to do that for the first time in the early 1940s. And during the D-Day landings, um, they they fed this information in and actually D-Day was delayed for two days, one or two days, because the swell on the first day would have meant the whole thing was a disaster. There was too much swell. And so they delayed it by one day uh, when the swell was quieter and the landings went ahead. And you all know the rest of the Second World War history. Um, but the point is that uh, they worked, they only worked out how to do this just before and the, the D-Day landings were in June so they were supposed to be on June 4th or 5th I think and it actually happened on June 6th um, but the world's first swell forecast had that not happened history might have turned out very differently but all they had to do was ask the question at that point they had the mathematics to do it but no one had thought that a swell forecast would be useful and of course now surfers use them all the time to know when waves are coming in where the good places to surf are where the good bits of coast to use are um, but that all started because of D-Day uh, in June, back in the 1940s. So that is my science this week. Thank you very much. The, uh, let's meet our guest for this week. First of all, Professor Pete Etchells, who uh, wrote a fantastic book. We, we, we talked about Shambles, Shambles. Probably, probably two years ago now, when we actually met you in person in those old, old days, uh, lost in a good game. Um, so, Pete, what have you got for us? What's your show and tell today? I'll be honest, I had something really cool that I wanted to show. Uh, and it's really super sciencey and nerdy. And then I couldn't find it because it was in a box somewhere because I've been doing some renovating and moving around recently. So uh, I, I can explain what it is in a minute, but I've had to default to the other thing that has been my lifesaver over the past year or so, which is this thing, which is a Nintendo Switch. I know it's very on brand for me, video games and, and whatnot, but uh, honestly has been a lifesaver over the past year in, in lockdown, especially for somebody like me who doesn't really get a chance to play video games that much anymore because uh, I've got a small child and a very busy job. So I don't really get time to sit down in front of the TV and play a PlayStation or anything like that. So just getting like five, ten minutes here and there on this gives me a bit of a video game fix. And I've been very appreciative of it over the last year. Um, my cooler thing, which I will explain, was somewhere in my house, I have three prints and each of them are of the periodic table. And they're data visualized so that they're each, each element is a, a ring and they're optimized so that they fit the, the most economical circle. And each ring is made up of little radial lines that represent the atomic numbers. And each of those lines is printed in a different element. So I've got one that's all printed in copper, one that's all printed in iron, one that's all printed in sulfur. And I don't know where they are. So that's my very boring show and tell for the week. Well, that was great. I know I still like it. <laughs> 
good trailer for the next time you're on and you find where that uh, box <laughs> yeah is. no pressure next time you come back you've got to bring it with you now i know i know i'll go and spend <laughs> the next few weeks finding it <laughs> can i ask you about looking at that game and it reminded me of a game of my childhood which was game and watch which was tremendously addictive but was tremendously dull you had to jump across five turtles was the one i had turtle bridge and um what i find interesting is now when i try and play games with my son I find it very, the, the controls on an Xbox, all of the fingers and thumbs, right? I'm 52. All I do basically is I end up being some superhero stuck under some debris for about 15 to 20 minutes, unable to work out how to get out of it. What do we know about the wiring of the brain and why I'm so incompetent with something like uh, the, the Xbox console? I don't know whether it's brain wiring greatest that might be right. there. <laughs> Could be at my age, uh, yeah. It's, it's. Uh, I mean, it's all about manual dexterity and and uh, and reaction times and motor responses, and we know that they start to decline depressingly early. So from kind of the mid twenties onwards, you get slower at these things, and you kind of see that borne out in professional video game realm. So esports, professional esports players who are millions and millions playing video games, um, tend to sort of burn out and retire from their mid twenties onwards, and and part of that is because it's a very intense environment and and you do just mentally burn out in it but also it's reaction times you just don't have that sort of split second edge over over the younger people um and that makes all the difference in some of these games really it's a great pity because i would love to make money being one of those men who just makes noises while playing minecraft and gets about 10 million followers a day but uh, unfortunately that's going to be impossible another career out of the window uh we're also joined by, by Ginny smith, smith uh, who has a book, book. i came out with it's it's last month isn't it Ginny? i think your book overloaded how every aspect of your life it, is influenced by your brain chemicals a couple of months ago now it was april oh months don't mean anything though during this kind no of pandemic, they really don't yeah. <laughs> um, which I thoroughly enjoyed that book, as you know. Um, uh, what uh, is your show and tell today? Is it an invisible well, box? <laughs> so it is um, probably even more exciting than Pete's in that I have brought a pencil. Um, but hopefully everyone at home also has a pencil or a pen or something else vaguely pointy. It doesn't need to be sharp, just with a kind of tapered end, because I wanted to show you a little illusion uh, that I've been enjoying. I've had to do lots of kind of changing of the demos that I normally do so that I can create demos that work when one person is on their own and only interacting with themselves. So like COVID safe illusions, this was quite a good one I found. So if you cross your first two fingers, like you're promising someone something you don't want to actually have to do. And then take your pencil or pen and just run it right in that V, kind of back and forwards. And you should find that there's a point you get to where it feels really odd. And some people start feeling like they, if you close your eyes, feeling like your pencil has two points to it. Are you getting that? I find there's a very specific angle that if you get, because what you want to be doing is touching both fingers at the same time from the inside of the cross. I've got a bit of it, but I'm pretty sure I'm also mostly just um, drawing with pen all over my fingers. Yeah, I've yes, done that, that as well. Yeah, that is downside to it. <laughs> So this is called the Aristotle illusion. It's a really, really old illusion that was discovered by Aristotle. Um, and basically what happens is that in your brain, you've got a kind of representation of your entire body, including your hands. 
But in the brain's representation of your hands, your fingers aren't crossed because most of the time that's how you live. You live with your fingers the right way around. So if you think about what you were doing when you crossed your fingers and touched the pen or pencil to them, you were touching the outside of this finger and the outside of that finger. Now, to do that, if your fingers weren't crossed, you'd have to have something with two ends that were attached together because they were moving together. So because your brain doesn't realize you've crossed your fingers, it can make you kind of get this weird feeling that you're actually moving something with two points so that it can be touching both of your fingers on the outside. Um, so yeah, that was just a fun little little demo that I found that was quite COVID safe that people can do on their own in their own homes. Um, and yeah, all you need is a, a pen or pencil. Some people say you can do it on your nose as well, but I've never got that to work. So like running your finger up and down your nose can make you feel like you've got two noses. But is this just I, something? Is this just all excuses for you know the weird twitches people have picked up in lockdown, one way or another? The, oh no, I'm doing a science experiment. Yeah. <laughs> or you could get people to get pen on their nose, perhaps. I just realised as I saw Robin do it, thinking, oh, I just need him draw on his fingers, and now he's rubbing his nose. But yeah, if you can get the nose one to work, let me know because I've I've never quite got that one got that one to work. Um, it's I don't hard, know if isn't I, it? Yeah. Though, because it is because then you start to wonder how psychosomatic it is because i know that like the rubber hand illusion there's been a lot which we've talked about before on this mm. and, and which i think there's some footage somewhere of me doing it with Haley Jew um, when she was at birmingham university and it is and you start to wonder how much is that once you have certain clues as to how you're meant to feel it's a really, yeah, it's it's uh... so I've found because I do the rubber hand illusion um, in my kind of school shows and family shows. And I've found that there's a perfect age at which kids get the rubber hand illusion like instantly. And it's around eight to 11, that sort of age. When you do it with younger kids, you'll get them going, oh, it feels good. But they can't really vocalize what they're experiencing. But when you do it with adults and teenagers, I think they get a bit in their head and they get a bit embarrassed to admit it. But I found that with like eight to 10 or 11 year olds, they will it will happen really quickly quite often. And without me giving them any clues, I just say, what does it feel like? And quite often you get them almost immediately going, it feels like that's my hand. Um, so I think I, we get a bit self-conscious as we hit our teenage years. And I think that somehow makes us get this kind of, oh, I don't want to admit that I'm feeling something weird because I might look a bit silly. And I think that all gets in the way a bit. Yeah, I know. I, I thought it worked on me when I, I tried it. The Caputo effect is, I think it's the Caputo effect, which is that one where if you stare directly into a mirror, uh just directly into your own eyes you know that one and uh yes. it's somewhere about one to two minutes your head starts to disappear because you're giving your brain so little feedback and then it snaps it out again or sometimes your head you suddenly look really old and there's all manner of different kind of ways that people change the perception of what they they see anyway we better get on with the questions let's start <laughs> with coprolite 9000 uh and this is uh, i'm going to throw this uh over to you i think pete because this is the tetris effect seeing tetris pieces rotating and falling through closed eyes after playing too much tetris is well known i once experienced a variant involving the game lemmings what is happening during this that's a good question I, there's a, a, a sort of general version of the tetris effect called the uh, video game transfer phenomenon um and i'm probably going to be quite boring over the over the next hour because i think my my answer to a lot of these questions is largely going to be the same which is that everything is caveated by the fact that a lot of video game research is rubbish. Uh, 
So <laughs> these things exist, and there are studies out there on things like the Tetris effect and stuff. I don't buy that the science is that good, particularly. So the, 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 the kind of depressing thing for us today, really, is that we don't really have much in the way of understanding how these things happen. Um, because of the nature of of these the, these games and these effects themselves, it's, it's surprisingly hard to uh, set up good, robust experimental studies in the lab that test these things. Uh, and yeah, that that's true of any psychological phenomena. But I think it's particularly true and and particularly acute in the case of video games because we just we can't recreate how you play video games in the lab really if you think about how you play them on a day-to-day -day basis um and then what it's completely different to what we try to do in the lab which is you know by and large experimental video game studies are you get somebody to play a video game for 20 minutes uh and then you get them to do something else uh and that's good in terms of controlling for extraneous variables and things like that but it's not how people play video games uh so what a lot of the research tends to show is sort of very weak effects on uh yeah weak, weak effects in terms of how things impact us um but that that doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of how we experience them in the real world and i think things like the tetris effect are a good example of that is that anecdotally a lot of people um report these sorts of kind of game crossover phenomena where they they, they sort of either visualize or they have sensations about something that they've been, they've been doing in, in game in the in the real world starting calling it the offline world recently um but <laughs> as as to why that's happening whether it's a, a memory effect or it's a, a sort of lagged motor effect we don't really know but isn't that i mean i was going to say the memory effect because because surely anything which has a you know kind of repetitive sensory input eventually i mean i i just think of when i was a teenager and i had an office job where i had to ring people like hundreds of every single you know hello i just wondered if you do hello and then when i would try and go to sleep i would still hear the whole pattern of that day because that had mm. been my day and that was so surely that just plays a part in uh mind's activity Definitely will, but I think obviously, like with with anything, there'll be huge individual differences at play. So you know, I play video games all my life and quite intensively at some periods of time. I've never experienced this sort of feeling. So you know, I played games for entire days sometimes, and then gone to bed and not not dreamt about games or uh, or or had any sort of sensations relating to that. And it sort of depends on things like, you know, how you're playing the game, who you're playing it with, what environment you're playing it in, what else is going on around you, and all of those sort of things together might feed into whether you start to experience these phenomena or not, or whether even you even have uh, memories of them in the same way that uh, sort of with your example, you know, if, if that was a very kind of intense day uh, and that was the only thing that you were doing, then it makes sense that you're kind of playing it back uh, in your mind o overnight. Whereas if it was only part of your day and you had something else that happened that day that was quite a big thing, then that probably wouldn't have happened to you. Brilliant. Thank you, Pete. I'm looking forward to you telling us more.
or things that we don't know. Um, <laughs> this is uh, um, Scruffy 45. But that's the problem, isn't it? At the moment we do psychology, and especially with the, the problems that have been revealed in the last, I suppose, in the beginning of this century about a lot of experiments which we'd previously thought were a little bit more solid, that uh, you go, well, it is a lot more complex and we haven't really <laughs> got, because we're dealing with an objective, uh, a subjective world rather, there are com complex things. So, yeah, don't expect any big answers today is what I'm saying. <laughs> but, but a lot of things for you to go away and work on. Um, Scruffy45 uh, would like to know, Ginny, um, since we now understand things like bipolar, depression, etc., are clinical conditions, why can't we detect them on things like MRIs? Yes, there's kind of a few points to be made there. The first is that in some cases, there are people who are starting to find ways to detect some subsets of people with various mental illnesses through brain scans. So um, there's some research going on at Oxford where they were looking at um, how people look at different faces and they were finding that people with depression on average spend more time looking at negative faces with negative expressions whereas people without depression on average spend more time looking at positive faces when they've got the choice um, and they were also finding more reactivity in the amygdala of the people with depression the problem is that these kinds of studies are great for research but kind of like Pete was saying, everything is so um, individualized when it comes to the brain that it wouldn't really work the way we have it at the moment as a diagnostic tool because it's on average. So that's not to say that if I took two people and put them in a brain scanner, I could tell which one of them was depressed just by what was going on in their brain because the difference might not show in those one or two people. Um, and so, yeah, so it's not really a useful diagnostic tool at the moment. The other thing is it's really, really expensive. So if we have a way of diagnosing depression or whatever it is without using a brain scanner, then we kind of, why wouldn't we just do that? And at the moment, behavioral diagnoses are better than brain-based diagnoses and they're cheaper. Um, so the kind of, the scanning stuff is really, really fascinating, but not particularly useful to translate to actually kind of clinical practice. Can I ask it with something, I don't know if you'll know this or not, but something like Capgras syndrome, the one where uh, people may, may well see, for instance, a parent and not believe it's them, even though they look exactly mm. like they're not getting the emotional. And as far, far as we know, I think that's because basically there's there's some damage between basically the, the, the our visual sense and where it connects to the motion. Um, yeah. Is that something that we would be able to see on an fMRI? Oh, I don't know if I've come across any studies specifically on that. I think it's really rare. So it's very hard to do experiments on these very rare syndromes because you just don't have enough people to do them. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't come across any on that. Um, no, I don't I, know, yeah, I, I, sorry, Pete, yeah. No, no, I, I don't. No. I, didn't, I, I don't have any either. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You need, it, it's all about so what you get in, in fMRI studies is uh, sort of averages of behaviour across quite a few people. Um, fMRI studies are notoriously underpowered as well. Um, and also there was... Uh, explain what fMRI is because a lot of these... Um, sure. Uh, you know these, uh, these acronyms and the difference is it's measuring it's measuring blood flow is that right if i remembered that correctly yeah uh, blood, so blood oxygenation levels right yeah so 
Perhaps so, explain the link there before you... Sorry, Peter, I didn't mean to interrupt. But no, no, it's fine. Shall I go? Okay, so MRI is magnetic resonance imaging. So that gives you the kind of structural view of the brain. And then the F means functional. So the idea is that we can see which bits of the brain are active because they will have more blood-carrying oxygen going to that bit of the brain because it needs that oxygen because it's active. Um, and because of physics, uh, we can see where the blood with oxygen in it is in the brain. I'll spare you the physics, but sorry, Pete, carry on. Now <laughs> we know what an FMR so, so is. That's, it's a really good thing to bring up as well, because mm. one of the things that people often uh, mistake with with fMRI is that uh, you'll see a picture of the brain and then you'll see some colours on it and and psychologists hate this but you know people say oh that area of the brain's lighting up that that brain that area of the brain's active and that's that's not the case it's sort of there are, are higher levels of uh, oxygenated blood in one area and perhaps lower levels in another area and the inference there is that because there is more oxygenated blood in that particular area of the brain it is more active and then the next inference is it is more active because it is involved in this thing that you're looking at so there's very sort of several kind of logical steps that you need to take from going to you know i'm getting this person to do this thing in the scanner to this brain area is involved in it which makes it all a bit messy really um but what i was going to say was that there was a study i think it was last year or the year before when it was pre-pandemic anyway uh where one one neuroscientist uh scanned his own brain every day for for a year and you look at the patterns across the year and, and they're all over the place they're all different so another problem with with fmri is that you you get people in the scanner for what like 15 20 minutes tops and that's a snapshot of them at that particular point on that particular day and it's not necessarily indica indi indicative of uh their, their kind of typical brain activity or their general brain activity so i mean all of this is to say that fmri is probably a little bit rubbish as a as a measure of anything really I, I said before that I was going to say that we don't know anything in, in, in this this hour. The other thing is I'm having quite a bit of a crisis at the minute about psychology and that every time I see a paper come out, I'm like, don't believe it. I think you've done the stats <laughs> wrong. You've done the methods wrong. It's all rubbish. So everything is rubbish at the minute. That is it's, it's quite a depressing thing, the number of books that I, I pick up and I go, oh, well, I can still really admire this person who did this research. And then you read the book and you go, oh, no, 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 no. They slightly made this leap and that leap. And actually, there were only three people involved in that bit of research. And But on the fMRI, I'll ask all of you a bit. But, I mean, is the basic what we're talking about here is some of the things that come up are very much parts of human personality. And the scale that we're seeing of the brain and what we're able to examine, we're not really being able to go, yeah, you know, we're able to see the big picture. If you see, you know, the really, low, but the the things that make us us are not really going to be detected on that scale, are they? So, Pete, no, Jenny, still no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I we sort of we're starting to understand the big scale and we're starting to understand the really tiny scale. Like we can understand how individual neurons communicate in a dish and things, but it's connecting those and working out how they come together to produce the huge range of human behaviors. Um, I think is, yeah, it, we're still a bit of a way off. It's scientists call it the hard problem, the sort of how does the brain produce consciousness and all of our experiences. And I think it's called the hard problem for a reason. 
Yeah, but not all those the easy problems you do, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> the things that brains are doing so there's a lot of functional things so for example speech and motor motion those are easier things to study and there is yeah. there are brain areas that are associated with those things and if you put electrodes in the right place you can read the brain so there are so, yeah. quite a lot of things the brain does which are very important if you think about all the things you need to have for a human to function quite a lot of it is just keeping the machine going and getting the machine and so those bits i think are a bit more a bit better understood and there are you know i've seen i was i visited years ago a lab in chicago where they had they planted electrodes in someone's brain and they could um this person wasn't able to speak but they were able to identify vowels mm -hmm. from the different brain waves so things like that which are functional we do have a better understanding of but what obviously what humans want is to who we are and like yeah. that is the hardest possible question so i feel that perhaps a bit of patience is required with just understanding how we talk and move and do all of those things and then it'll come later but we're still yeah. sorting out the basics and as pete says a lot of it is a tech problem so okay fmri isn't perfect but it's given us a level of understanding that we just couldn't get before we could look inside a functioning human brain in that way um, and every time we get a new piece of technology or the piece of technology gets that bit better we kind of look and go oh okay so it wasn't just that whole area it's actually different things within that area and then the technology goes a bit better and we're like oh well it's actually even more complicated than that so i think a part of it is is it's a really hard fundamental problem and part of it is the technology isn't there yet to really understand the huge complexity of the brain. But it is just astonishing that it's even possible to see in a living, Absolutely. functioning human how much oxygenated blood is going to different parts of their brain. Like, oh, that's that's amazing. Well, so I think also I was going to say in terms of some of the better sides of fMRI, if anyone heard our tips for existence with the neuroscientist Adrian Owen, who did a lot of pioneering work on people in vegetative states and finding out people who were still there you know they were still there, there was no outward sign to suggest no physical sign to suggest from 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 the exterior that that person was still inhabiting their body and you know and it's had incredible revelations for people who were presumed to basically be dead a living body but with no personality and, and so things like that I, and it's very interesting his into the gray zone is the name of his book um and it's yeah it, it shows so even when we're doing down things, sometimes there, yeah, there are still good things in there. Let's move on to uh, a question from Jennifer. Uh, this is about how can we create pain? I don't know who to start because this is such a Lorimer Mosley's done some very interesting stuff on this. Uh, Jennifer said, I've read about people who suffer from chronic pain, but there isn't anything diagnostically wrong with them beyond the pain itself. So is this more a brain going wrong thing than a physical injury, for example? Now, um, Jenny, would you like to start on that? Because it's a very interesting, the, the, the creation of pain. Yeah, so we think of pain as very much something that happens in the part of our body that is injured. But actually, the experience of pain is something that happens in the brain. And if you do, say, injure your hand, there is a pathway that goes from the site of the injury um, up your nerves to your spinal cord and into your brain. And your brain can then register that as pain but there's also a pathway that goes back down again where your brain can kind of turn off that pain based on your environment and whether you're paying attention to it and all sorts of other things so actually pain is always a kind of subjective thing 
Now, it does seem that in chronic pain, what can sometimes happen is that it usually starts with an actual injury or sometimes it can be nerve damage. But what happens is that if that injury or the nerve damage means that signals are being sent over and over again up that pathway to the brain, you can actually get changes in the pathway itself. So in the nerves that send those signals to your brain. And then the injury might heal, but those nerves have become what we call sensitized and they will now respond to almost anything. So you can get a type of pain where like the brush of your clothing on your skin can cause you to feel pain as if you've been stabbed or cut or something because your nerves have become so sensitized. So a lot of the time, yes, chronic pain isn't an injury in your arm anymore. It's now a problem with that nerve signal getting sent to your brain and then there's also changes that can happen within the brain that can make it worse so um, in some people with chronic pain they found that the prefrontal cortex areas of the prefrontal cortex don't seem to be functioning as well to kind of damp down the pain because normally that is part of the system that can reduce pain um, so yeah so there do seem to be kind of structural changes in the brain in this in this p pain dampening system um, so yeah, and that's one of the reasons chronic pain is so hard to treat because it seems to be that there are changes in lots of different places in the system. Pete, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I mean, that was a really good overview of one of one of the lectures that I used to give on pain. So <laughs> thanks for that, Ginny. That was really good. Um, so uh, I, I agree with everything that, that you said there. I, I, I remember a, a, a really fascinating example. I think it was in a Horizon episode about 10 years ago where there was a, a really good example of sort of bringing all of these things together. And there was a story of a, a woman who'd had a stroke um, and then she had excruciating pain down one side of her body for, well, for for the entire time afterwards. And, and it was down to that. So the way that they showed how that rewiring had happened was that they used a, a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is basically where you get a big magnet and you uh, you kind of position it over wherever you want in the head and you can either um, activate an area of the brain or you can inhibit it depending on uh, the type of um, uh, the type of signal that you use and what they were showing was that basically what had happened in this case is that the stroke had caused some rewiring of the motor cortex which is a, a sort of strip of a strip of brain uh, sort of in the middle of your head basically it goes down both sides and the left side controls the right side of your body and vice versa there it is it's the green one um, <laughs> and what they found was that you know if, if you activate certain areas and that's one of those areas how you were talking about before where we know quite a lot where if you stimulate different parts of it you can see different parts of a person's body twitch it's really cool when it happens um, but they were stimulating bits that should have uh, stimulated the right right arm and it wasn't it was it was making some other place twitch so that they knew that something had gone wrong with the, the mapping there and that's likely what was causing this pain sensation because something was triggering a, a movement pathway but it was being interpreted as as pain by the brain um and one of the cool things potentially cool things about um tms is that you could use it as a therapy as well so there's sort of two different types the sort of tms where you just give somebody a, a short sharp jolt jolt and it'll make something twitch or you can use much weaker signals called repetitive tms uh, and fire them into an area of the brain a sort of constant pace and if you do that over a period of time it starts to help rewire 
those parts of the brain. Um, so, so they did this in in the show. They 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 applied this RTMS therapy, and and you know at that point in time, she she stopped feeling pain. It was wonderful, feel good uh, story just to bring old misery Pete back. Um, mm-hmm. The thing about RTMS is, depending on the frequency you use, you can either get immediate. Uh, short-term improvements that don't translate into long-term, which is what happened in that show. So I think depressingly, probably when she went home three weeks later, the pain would have come back again. Or you can see much more long-term improvements. So you know, hopefully for that person, they they got um, they got more of it. I mean, it's still all early days with this sort of stuff, really. But there are studies that show that if you use this sort of therapy, it improves uh, with, with people with chronic pain, it improves their quality of life. Uh, it improves their kind of pain response and things like that. Brilliant. Thank you. Sorry, someone was about to say something, I think. Oh, I was just going to say, I think there have also been some studies looking at implants, either into the spinal cord or into areas of the brain where you can get like a pacemaker type thing with electrical stimulation to do a similar um, kind of thing. But obviously, if you can do it through the skull, then that's a lot less invasive and a lot less risky than having to implant electrodes actually into the brain or the spinal cord. Also, if anyone has uh, either read uh, or seen the Michael Crichton uh, book and film, The Terminal Man, they will know there's a lot of risks uh, in 1975 uh, on that. Uh, Now, the next question is uh, from Matt. This is for you, Helen. Uh, I've just watched Helen's documentary on cobalt, and I have a question. While obviously better than fossil fuels, are we just risking moving from one environmental risk to another if we exhaust the supply of cobalt, or are we further down the line of better lithium iron phosphate than I imagined? Uh, so the context of this is that I made an epically charged all about cobalt and we talk, and we talk about cobalt recycling and the problems of extracting it and whether we need it in batteries because there's a lot of conversation about, you know, yeah. are we just going to mine a load of cobalt and then cause all the problems that come with digging big holes in the ground? And I think the answer is firstly that um, there are lots of battery chemistries which don't use cobalt and the major effort in battery technology is trying to reduce the amount of cobalt needed. So there is a huge amount of work on this and there are lots of like we the problem almost the problem with batteries is that we could pick up like an AA battery and it looks the same but what can be inside it is really really different and we don't see what's inside it we just go oh it's an AA battery. So we don't see what's hidden on the inside. So when it comes to the environmental damage I think Electrification has to happen. Burning fossil fuels is just not an option at all in the future. We need to get rid of it. What we can do and what we are doing is working out ways to make batteries which don't involve the damage. And the other thing is that once we've got enough cobalt, for example, in the system, if you recycle it, it just goes round and round. And cobalt is what's driving battery recycling now because it's very valuable. We also need to recycle things like lithium, which are at the moment not valuable enough for anyone to bother recycling them. So there there's two things there's two opportunities with the electrification of uh, vehicles and things like that one is we stop burning fossil fuels and that is the most critical thing we need to do it now but the other thing is that we are technologically advanced enough that if we put effort in we can find ways to build the next stage sustainably and so that is um that's what we're aiming to do so so i think that there's someone's buzzing here um sorry about the buzzing um so i think it is perfectly possible to do it um we just have to put the effort in now but it is absolutely the case that electrification is far 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 better than what we've got now right you go and get that 
I'll ask you another My question in a minute. The, uh, um, this is uh, a question from BD uh, for you, Pete. Uh, BD says, I remember last year, uh, again, another person saying, I think it was last year, no one knows anymore. Uh, Pete <laughs> tweeting about a study he was working on about the links between gambling, video games and loot boxes. And uh, BD just wondered uh, if anything's happened with that research so far. It's been an absolute dumpster fire, that study this year, because of the <laughs> pandemic. So, But that being said, I literally finished testing on it last week. Um, so, um, so yeah, I'm just kind of going through through the, the, the data analysis at the minute. Um, that's, that, that study basically is looking at the relationship or the potential relationship between what are called loot boxes. So for people who don't know, loot boxes are kind of like the video game equivalent of Panini sticker album card pack. So you play a game uh, and when you say you level up, you get a free box and you open the box and it gives you a chance at getting, say, a new outfit for a character or some in-game currency and things like that. It's randomized rewards. Um, or you can pay for them as well. Um, and if we, a lot of them are things like um, outfits for characters. And, and what you find is that there are some what are called legendary outfits are very, very rare uh, common outfits which you get all the time and you just ditch um and stuff in the middle so uh because this thing has been labeled rare and you have a relatively low percentage, low percentage chance of chance getting of it getting it becomes desirable because you want that thing that nobody else has had a sort of basic kind of human human social engineering really uh, so the worry with these sorts of loot boxes is that they look like a form of gambling right so you pay 99p to open a loot box uh, because you want a chance at that really desirable thing and you don't get it so you pay another 99p and you pay another 99p um, and because of the way that we monetize games now it's not the case that you pay 50 quid or whatever and that's it you've got the game uh, very often games are free to download uh, now and they make their money through getting you to part with small amounts of money frequently so these sorts of in-game microtransactions they're called so the worry is that there's no limit on how much you can spend on these and and anecdotally there are there are stories of people who've you know blown life savings on fifa fifa packs uh for fifa football games um people are generally worried that the government is worried about these things uh so there was a, a call for evidence in november last year actually uh, specifically around loot boxes and potential harm in the kind of gambling realm with a view to looking at whether we should be revising the uk gambling act to to take into account these sorts of uh digital things that aren't called gambling but kind of look very much like it uh, the, the the worry with it all is that um, the the data that we've got at the minute is is relatively young. So we've only really started looking at loot boxes specifically in the past three or four years. Uh, that means it's sort of quite embryonic at this stage, and and a lot of what we know about loot boxes at the minute is correlational in nature. Uh, and my study actually isn't any different in that sense. It's it's different because I'm using different statistical techniques to look at the strength of evidence, the, the strength of the correlations, but uh, it is correlational stuff nonetheless. So the, the correlations all are a bit worrying that, that people who spend more money on loot boxes also show higher levels of problematic gambling. Uh, what we don't know at the minute is the direction. So is it that people who buy loot boxes become problem gamblers or is it the people who have difficulties with gambling are more drawn to these sorts of games with these sorts of mechanisms in a sense it doesn't matter which way it is it's bad either way 
Um, but I'm, I'm trying to sort of sit on the fence as much as I can about this. I mean, with my, my personal opinion is that loot boxes are garbage and you should get rid of them because they're, they're, they feel detrimental to a gaming experience and, and they, 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 they contribute to a, 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 what I feel is a drive to, um, to, to monetize play. To, to to sort of commercialize play really in that it feels sometimes when you play these sorts of games that you you're not playing it for the enjoyment that you need to spend money in order to enjoy it and that's that's not cool in my book so with that caveat i'm, I'm sort of trying to stay objective because i am also painfully aware that um if if something looks like a duck and acts like a duck in psychology it's not necessarily a duck um Sometimes it's a rabbit, isn't it? Sometimes it's a rabbit, yeah. Um, and we've fallen into that trap with, with with video game research before in that you know, we were convinced for years that violent video games cause aggression. Um, and this was reinforced by uh, things like school shootings in the US being linked to, to video game play. And finally, finally, when we got some good research and some good data on this it turns out that there's a small link between aggression and playing games but it's actually pretty weak and it's probably not worth worrying about there are other things going on that will be precipitators of 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 real aggression so i i I have this sort of background worry that with things like loot boxes we, we end up walking down a similar route in that you know, we have these we have these stories that come out in the news of people who've had real financial difficulties as a result of getting sucked into these things. We have some initial evidence that suggests that there are correlations there. Uh, what we don't want to say is that that is therefore good enough to say let's ban loot boxes or you know let's let's limit who can play games and things like that because we end up might doing might end up doing more harm than good in that sense and then five ten years down the line finding that loot boxes actually aren't as problematic as we thought they are um that that is what i suspect the data might show in the end in that there are negative links they are probably not large links and that there are other things going on that impact on people's things like problematic gambling behaviors and uh and mental health and things like that Brilliant. Thank you very much. A uh, question from uh, Seema, uh, nine-year-old Seema. Hello, Seema. Uh, Ginny, for you, Seema would like to know, how do painkillers work? How does taking something stop a pain in your leg or your head? So the answer is that different painkillers work differently. So the ones that you get over the counter, things like paracetamol, they tend to act at the site of the pain. So uh, say you've cut your hand, you've damaged a load of cells. Those damaged cells are gonna kick out all these chemicals that kind of spark a, a chain reaction that ends up sending the pain signal to your brain. So what paracetamol does is it blocks one of those uh, chemicals at this kind of the site of the um, injury. But that's why paracetamol doesn't completely get rid of pain because it's only blocking one of these chemicals and it's not actually stopping the signal get to the brain. If you're talking about the kind of uh, painkillers that might be used in a hospital, things which we call opioids, so things like morphine, they actually act on the nerves that are sending the signal from wherever the pain is to your brain. And they stop those nerves from sending their signal. So that's why they are the most effective painkillers. Unfortunately, they have some really nasty side effects and they can, in some cases, be addictive, which is why they're generally only used 
used by doctors um, in extreme cases of pain. You can't just buy them over the counter. Um, but yeah, so different ones have kind of different mechanisms. Thank you. Now, the, this is a an issue. This is from Graham. There's been a lot of talk about aphantasia online lately. I wonder if any of the panel could talk about the current research theories on it. Now, aphantasia. I, I think I only really first heard about this reading John Higgs's excellent book, uh, William Blake versus the World, because William Blake did have a very powerful second vision. He would see angels, but he would know that it was his experience he couldn't say go and look at those angels so it's about as far as i know it's basically about the very vivid uh self-generated images so images not necessarily generated by by uh, exterior visual stimuli but um is is that fair pete can i a fantasia do you know much on this no idea i've never heard of it <laughs> but no that's it, it is it seems there's a lot ginny it's really new. So um, I think what you're talking about is hyperphantasia. Aphantasia is the opposite, which is having no mind's eye. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, apparently some people wrote about it like 100 years ago, but it was only kind of rediscovered in the last like 10, 15 years or something like that. But I have a colleague at the um, British Psychological Society who realized she has it and she made a podcast um, about it. And yeah, so basically it turns out that if I say to you, imagine a pineapple, visualize a pineapple, there are some people who will like see every detail and it be really, really vivid and that would be hyperphantasia. There are a bunch of people who are sort of in the middle and then there are some people who literally cannot see it at all and they always thought that when people are talking about seeing something in their mind's eye that was like a metaphor they they can't visualize things at all so scientists have now discovered that this is a thing and have started looking into it there isn't really much research on it yet because it is kind of brand new um so yeah, it's it's really brand new. They're looking at whether there are any links with kind of being either good or bad at other things as well. So um, I think there was um, some links between hyperphantasia and synesthesia, which is this um, condition where you get the mixing of senses. Um, and I think they found some links between aphantasia and not being as good at remembering visual things as well which kind of makes sense because if you were trying to remember a visual scene you would sort of visualize it so if you're not very good at visualizing then that can also link with visual memory but what causes it what the differences are in the brain i we don't know yet basically see that's what because I, I i think what i read was that was that um, a lot of artists, that, again, this is all quite anecdotal at this stage, I think, but uh, from, I think, John Higgs and, and other friends of mine, that they've read quite a lot where artists, visual artists, actually have a, not, not all of them, but some have aphantasia. So there's no, they're not imagining the thing in their head as they start creating it. They're creating it so that they can see it if that makes sense so it, it's not it's not translation from oh, i've i've had this brilliant vision in my head it's oh right I, this is the vision i'm now creating which i think is again very early stages but um it sounds a little bit like um sorry go ahead what's really interesting is that um 
that it highlights the assumption. Everyone has this assumption that everyone else sees the world the yeah. way they see it. And totally. so there are all kinds of things that we never question, even if they sound a bit odd, because this is obviously I perceive it like this. So obviously everyone else perceives it like this. And you've yeah. got to ask the really obvious question of what do you mean when you say it's red? before you get anywhere anyway sorry go on pete no and it's, it's the same it's with synesthesia sorry i'm um, that a lot of people realize that everyone doesn't experience the world like that until they're maybe a teenager or something and they say to someone oh tuesday tastes red today and the other person's like what the hell are you talking about so we do we do have this kind of assumption that we all see the world the same pete i mean i was just going to say the same thing basically but i was thinking about it in the context of asmr um autonomous sensory meridian response and and thinking about it in the context of how you do research on this it's actually really hard because like like you were saying well both of you Helen Jenny that to try and recruit people who've got these 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 things these these sorts of uh, the ways of seeing the world is quite hard because they won't necessarily think that they're seeing it any differently to anybody else because because that's the way things have always been mm-hmm. so trying to trying to come up with a framework as to how to define these things is very tricky to do without sort of um, shoeboxing yourself almost. And this is sort of something that I'm worried a little bit with ASMR research in the I've, exp- I've experienced ASMR uh, or I did when I was, when I was a, a, a kid uh, and it, it was sort of a very specific way uh, in which sort of, sort of some people would eat would trigger it for me. But if you look at how the research is sort of done now, it's, it's largely based off recruiting people from places like Reddit who have come together because they, they have this shared experience. But if you look at how ASMR is triggered in, in those populations, I, I would never have thought of that from, from my own personal perspective. It, you know, and it doesn't do anything for me. Uh, it doesn't have the same effect. So my worry is that you know you have these sort of subgroups of self-selecting people who have certain types of triggers, and then they become the whole definition of ASMR. Um, and what it actually does is it misses out a lot of people who don't go on Reddit and don't really read about ASMR, but nevertheless experience it, but don't realize that that's a thing that other people don't experience because you never really talk about it. So it's the kind of unknown unknowns thing in in, in this sort of research. How do you how do you find your true population um, and not kind of run the risk of getting restricted to a subpopulation that you think is representative of everybody who has that thing? Oh, everyone's gone very quiet. Oh, that was me. It was me because my signal just went and I was uh, I got just as far as Reddit and then uh, my computer said, I don't want to know any more about that and uh, and lost its signal. Um, so sorry, that was the reason for the silence was my signal was just coming back. This is uh, a quick question. Martha said, well, this is not a quick question, actually. We've got five more questions, which I don't think we Martha's just, can you explain the process of belief formation in the brain? How is it that belief can be strengthened even in the face of contrary evidence? Now, I would suggest that it might be worth recommending some books rather than trying to answer that, because this is I mean, there's a lot coming out at the moment uh, in in the last couple of years and and coming up about bias and uh how we're swayed into opinion uh Pragya Agarwal who was on the um uh show a while ago um so can I take from from uh from Pete and Ginny Pete first of all would you recommend where's a good place to start on learning about this uh that's that's a really good question actually I think so I'm going to kind of 
go a bit off piste with with my suggestion because uh, there are there is there are some good books on the the kind of science of belief and superstition. Bruce is a great uh, writer on on this sort of stuff, but um, actually, what this this sort of thing I think ties in with a lot of discussions around how how we interact with people online at the minute and how we um, uh, how we take information in that's counter to our not necessarily religious beliefs but uh political beliefs and 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 sort of put, put it to one side and i think for me a lot of that is around failures in critical thinking uh and it's something that i think we've sort of collectively struggled with over the past three or four years in terms of that ability to try and be as objective as possible and uh, not just blindly accept things that fit with our worldview uh, and then disagree vehemently with things that don't, but you know, really try to interrogate information that comes in that we would kind of de facto agree with. Uh, so all of that is a bit of a long and rambly way of saying, I think a really good book in this realm, thinking about criticality, particularly in the context of, of science, is um, Science Fiction by Stuart Ritchie. It's a really kind of good primer on how science gets things wrong um and and you know how we can fix that so things like fraud and stuff but the the kind of reading between the lines of it is is looking at how some of these people who engage in these practices fool themselves as well and sort of taking pointers from that as to you know how we can uh, be better believers in things yeah and we do actually there's a conversation somewhere on cosmic shambles with Stuart that you can hear talking about science fiction um Ginny yeah, so I just grabbed this one off my shelf, which is Brigid Supersense, which is all about why we believe superstitious things um, and kind of how our brains are basically always looking for cause and effect. And sometimes they look too hard and they assume that something that has happened is because of something else you've done. So um, the meeting that went really badly at work was because you wore those red socks so now you can't ever wear those red socks again because they're unlucky those kinds of things so that's a really good book for that but just on what pete was saying as well there's slightly worrying evidence that even if we consciously look at things critically i believe just reading things can actually make them stick in your brain without you wanting them to so there's evidence for example that um debunking myths can actually reinforce them because one of the things our brain is quite good at is extracting the gist of information and leaving behind the details so your brain will remember oh I heard that person talking about left brains and right brains but it won't remember the detail of the fact that actually they were saying that the whole idea that left brains create right brains creative and left brains logical is rubbish you just remember Oh, left brain, right brain. And actually that can reinforce the myth. So there's a real danger, even for people who are cri thinking critically, that that sort of just scrolling through Facebook, taking in headlines might be storing information in your brain that you don't want there. And when you come back to it, you don't necessarily remember that that was something that you just happened to scroll past on Facebook. You remember it as a piece of information stored in your brain. So that it's called source monitoring. Knowing where you got information from is often harder than remembering the information itself. And I think that's part of the problem.
Yes, yeah, probably one of the reads. The reads. Yeah, go on. Very quick reading recommendation, even though I'm not the expert in this area, but there's an essay that Dallas Campbell recommended to me years ago called Complicating the Narratives by Amanda Ripley. And it, it takes into account the neuroscience and the journalism sides of it. And it's quite a long read. I can't remember all the details because it's a while since I've read it. It's really, I'll tweet it in a bit, but it's a really good read on exactly this topic. Right, we've run out of time uh, and uh, we had a lot more left to do. With you. Again, the mind, you can't do more than about three questions because it turns out there's a lot of complex, there's a lot of uncertainty. <laughs> um, I've got one more question for you, uh, Helen, um, and uh, that's from Dean. Uh, I, I don't remember if we've dealt with this before, but it's one that a lot of adults think about. Why do young kids not get dizzy? Oh, so dizziness comes from, again, so I'm not a physiologist, dizziness comes from um, um, a mismatch between uh, what your eyes are seeing and what is going on in your physiological mechanisms for understanding balance. So in your inner ear, what you've got these loops of fluid and if they're whizzing around, uh, your brain goes, oh, I'm turning, I can feel I'm turning because the fluid is lagging behind. And so it starts sloshing around on the inside. And so the normal, one of the reasons for being dizzy is that um, it, that doesn't match what you're seeing with your eyes. And your brain goes, oh, I don't know where I am anymore because I can't, I can't tell whether I'm this way up or that way up. And so I don't know about young children, but my suggestion is that either they've not connected up the discrepancy between those two things yeah. yet, or they just don't care. <laughs> it's one or the other. Um, isn't, it, isn't it the liquid itself has, is, is kind of becomes more viscous with age? So I, I, I thought there was something about that, but that might be the same way that I totally forgot the way round of aphantasia. But I had a lovely image in my head of what aphantasia was, which should have really reminded me. Um, so uh, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Uh, we'll be back next Sunday uh, at 10 a.m. again. Uh, Pete Etchells, uh, you can listen to him talking about Lost in a Good Game uh, on Cosmic. There's a book shambles somewhere there, and there's also a book shambles on Ginny Smith talking about her book, um, Overloaded, both of which I would uh, highly recommend. Uh, like I said, support us on Patreon. Patreon. Anil Seth is coming up on the next Tips for Existence. He is a uh, really interesting neuroscientist. His his new book is, uh, is, is it's not a, it's out in September. It's a fantastic book and also worth watching his TED talk, which is, is very interesting. Starts off with his experience of uh, general anaesthetic. Um, thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton. Thank you, uh, Helen, Pete and Ginny. See you next time. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.